Man, it's so good to see everyone face to face. Thanks for being here this morning, coming through the, the cold and rain. We got a cold, rainy day just for our British preacher. Brought the weather with him. So it should probably come as no surprise to any of you that I'm not a mother. I have never been a mother. I don't think I ever will be a mother in this life. Um, but this morning, I want to help us and hope and I pray that through the teaching, we're going we're gonna to undertake a weaning process. So we're not going to wean off of milk, but hopefully this morning, through the content of what we're discussing, God will use his own word to help wean us from this world. Each of us have walked in here as inhabitants of this world, but if you're in Christ, you know that this is not your final resting place. You're merely a sojourner, an alien, a pilgrim, a stranger, passing through this foreign land on your way to your eternal destiny. So part of what we have to do as Christians is to stir one another up by encouragement and also by reminder. So much of the Christian life is full of reminders, right? We're prone to forgetfulness, so we have to remember. The Bible is full of reminders, reminders of who we are in Christ and where we're going. So this morning, the reminder that we're going to reflect on is that as those who have been united to God by faith in Christ, we inhabit an internal reality that distinguishes us from anything that's external. So the primary thing that unites us is Christ. It's not the color of our skin. It's not the language that we speak. It's not our socioeconomic background. It is the fact that we possess Christ. I live in an apartment complex on the west side of Fayetteville. It's called Light Bear. Some of you have probably heard of it. Just the other day, I was sitting on the porch with my wife, and down below us, we saw that there were kids playing soccer together. There were kids from Syria, kids from Afghanistan, kids from Dothan, Alabama, and there were kids from the Marshall Islands, all together in Fayetteville, Arkansas, playing soccer. It was a unique and beautiful picture that, despite significant cultural, ethnic backgrounds and barriers, the unity of a love for fun and a love for soccer brought unity to these kids so that they could play with one another. What's crazy is that that picture pales in comparison to the unity that we ought to share as the body of Christ together. We have more in common with one another if we are in Christ than we do with our very relatives who share our blood if they're not believers. So these are some of the things that we're going to be thinking about this morning. If we've been given new hearts in Christ as we've explored in previous lessons, it will change how we relate to one another. As Christians, we have something far greater in common. We have Christ. So over the next four lessons, Lord willing, over these next four weeks, including this one, we're going to be spending the whole time in the class exploring specific applications and implications of the new heart that we've received in Christ. So all that groundwork that's been laid in the past, we're going to continue to explore in full implications. Today, we're going to unpack implications for life together as a church, as we discussed, and for singleness. And then in the weeks that follow, John's going to unpack implications of the new heart in Christ for marriage, for parenting, and then for suffering. So you'll definitely want to come back. As we begin, I want to get us thinking about areas that may mark our unity in the church apart from the gospel. Some of these things can be subtle. There's a phrase, gospel plus community. It's inevitable as humans that we're going to unite around uh, external factors. It's just part of how we relate to one another. But the aim as new covenant believers in Christ is that our unity is bound up in Christ and not external factors. So I'm curious to hear from you guys. What are some external factors that sometimes in our flesh we, uh, we unite around? What, what are some of those external factors that sometimes constitute our unity apart from Christ? Sports teams. Yeah. You can look at a stadium and see, man... All these people love the hogs. What else? Sports 
Did you say work? Yeah, work. So if we have work in common, it, honestly, that one kind of uh, translates to socioeconomic status in some way. You'll see lots of churches that are predominantly more white collar or predominantly more blue collar. What else? Kids, politics, yeah. Who said kids? Yeah, so kids, first and foremost, yeah. You'll see lots of churches around Fayetteville that are full of just young singles or young marrieds, but with no kids. And then you'll see churches that are just family churches and there's no older folks. These churches are missing out on huge gifts that Christ has given to the church to grow. And then I think Danny mentioned politics. Yeah, absolutely. This is one that cuts against a lot of churches hard. You saw over uh, the time during COVID, there was a lot of political polarization in the churches about responses. So are we, yes, united around the gospel, but also Republican politics? If someone leans a little bit left, are they still welcome in our fellowship? Or should they be excommunicated? Similarly, there were many churches who... um, or maybe more left-leaning in their politics and said, if you don't take up these social justice causes, you can't really belong to this fellowship. So hopefully you're starting to get a picture and see that in our very church, there are going to be external factors that we unite around. The question is not, are those things going to happen? But how can we counteract that and really press into the unity that we have in Christ? So let's think about five aspects of who we are in Christ. And again, these are Hopefully not going to be anything that are new to you, but hopefully things that will be faithful reminders of who we are in Christ so that we can press into that unity that we share in him. My prayer as we've been going into this lesson is that we'd be able to honestly assess that if we are in Christ, is he directing everything else in our life? So first, we are defined by Christ, not externals. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, whenever we go to the store and we get a new fit that we're super proud of, of course we want to wear it on Sunday morning and show it off. We get a new haircut, we're looking fresh, we want other people to see it. This is an element of something new in us that we want to show. As new creations in Christ, are we eager to show others, this is how I've grown, this is how I've changed. This is the old, this is the new, and this new person is primarily identified not by what's external, but by what's been defined by Christ. I am a new creation in him. My old desires, my old wants, my old preferences have passed away. Behold, the new has come in Christ. Is being a new creation in Christ so core to your identity that it shapes how you view yourself and others? Do you find that you naturally gravitate towards certain people in the church? Again, that's not bad. It may be just a natural cause. But if you find yourself naturally gravitating toward a specific demographic of people or away from a certain demographic of people, toward the people that are easy to converse with and away from the people that are hard to converse with, does that represent an identity that's been defined by Christ or one that's been defined by external worldly factors? This is challenging to me. If I'm honest, I naturally gravitate toward the people that are like me the people who share common interests, the people that I find it's easy to talk with because we have commonality outside of Christ. It's a lot harder to work at and to be dependent upon Christ to help us to relate to those who may be externally different from us. But we're not just defined by Christ. We are united in Christ. That's the the second one. So in the early days of the church, there were Jews who wanted to make the Gentiles like Jews, in order for them to be saved and secure in Christ. You see there on the screen, Acts 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Paul and Barnabas were present at the time and debated these guys fiercely. The church at Antioch decided to send a delegation to Jerusalem for a decision about what to do. And the Jerusalem council there in Acts 15 agreed with Paul that nothing external was needed for salvation except faith in Jesus alone. You see that there in verses 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We are all united in Christ, not because of some outward practice, but because of the faith that we possess that has been given to us by God. God has given to the Jews and to the Gentiles the Holy Spirit, which has cleansed our hearts by faith and united us to Christ. We need to pray that God would help us to comprehend the joy of this truth. That just because we're born to Christian families or just because we grew up in Christian setting doesn't make us any further ahead than someone who doesn't have those circumstances. But third, we are adopted through Christ, not externals. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Though all of us have entered into this world as children of the devil, alienated from God, we were chosen before the foundation of the world if we are in Christ. And therefore, we have been destined for adoption into God's family. Those scattered across the world, we were held in custody to the law, just as we read about. We were like children set to receive a massive inheritance being raised by guardians until the day that the Spirit gave us new birth and brought us into God's household through union with Christ. Now that we're in God's family, we are all his children, equally beloved, equal in standing, equal as heirs of the kingdom. This reality is so strong in the mind of Paul and in the mind of God that you could live your life as a true Christian or as a slave in the Roman Empire while never once feeling less loved by God or secure in God than any other Christian. Being brought into and adopted as a child of God means that we have status, that we've received this wonderful inheritance of all of the blessings that he's given to his children. It's amazing in thinking about our union with Christ that God has set upon his beloved son the fullness of his divine love and the fullness of his divine favor. So what does that mean when we are united into Christ? It means that by faith, we also are recipients of God's divine favor and divine love. So that when we look out among one another, And we see people that we feel like we have no relation to. I couldn't possibly know even where to start in conversation with this person. Maybe we start with, ah, this is someone that God has chosen to adopt into the family that I'm a part of, which means they're my family. God has set in Christ the fullness of his divine favor and love on this person. Who am I to withhold my love, my attention, my care? Sometimes this requires faith. We have to pray, God, I don't even know where to start in conversation. I'm just going to initiate and go. I'm going to cross the aisle and talk to this person and see where the conversation goes. 
It can also mean that when we have disagreements with one another, whether it's related to politics or parenting style or background or whatever it may be, we don't first look to those disagreements as cause for disunity. We instead look to the status that they possess as family of God as means for relation and connection and unity. And then if opportunity arises, we can have conversations about areas where there's where we're able to have disagreement in Christian freedom. Fourth, we are fixed upon Christ, not externals. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. In God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a wonderful passage on the reality of who we are in Christ. That we are those who have died but have been raised with him just as he is raised. And as a consequence, we can seek the things that are above. We can set our minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things, because we have died and our life was hidden with Christ in God. If you've ever wondered what are the practical implications of Christ's resurrection from the dead, this verse helps us out. There's also a, um, a, a, a reformed confessional document, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism, that uses this verse to formulate an answer and a question to remind us that we are fixed on Christ, not on externals. We are already raised to new life. This is question and answer 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? If you're new to catechisms, this question-answer response is a way of discipling, teaching, remembering good truths. I was just hanging out with some guys uh, this past Friday, um, and we were talking about how all of us were sitting there, and we had various phones or tablets with notes, with Matthew and John and a couple other guys. And we were lamenting the fact that uh, as we're talking about our different note-taking strategies and inventory to reflect uh, different notes, that in the past, people didn't have crazy systems to remember all the different notes that we have. But it's because they were just better at memory. <laughs> they didn't have crutches to, to stand upon to remember all these things, so they had to memorize. And catechisms were one of the key ways that the church, through its history, has remembered core doctrines of the faith. Um, so if you're new to these, these are a great element to incorporate into your discipleship. But this is question and answer 45 from the Heidelberg. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to all, to us, of our blessed resurrection. So you see there in that second answer, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. This means that in Christ, we've been raised to a new life that reflects the loves and the priorities and the new creation reality that he possesses, which means we relate to one another as those who have been bought by his blood, as those who have been adopted into his family. Because Christ has died and risen, when we are united to him, we share in his resurrection even before we are glorified and lived and live with him. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Oh God, help us to live into this reality. But fifth, we are awaiting a new city as a new people. This is where we're going. This is what we were talking about. And because we are just sojourners here, because we're pilgrims in a foreign land, we're merely passing through. We're heading to the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. I saw, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the wonderful reality that we get to look forward to as Christians. There's this glorious hymn called Glory Land, and it reflects on heaven, the glory land awaiting us. The lame shall walk again, the blind will receive their sight, it says. And one of my favorite lines from it says that there will be no need for light up there, for Christ himself will be our light. You ever think about that? In heaven, there's no need for light, for Christ himself is light that radiates out. And we get to behold him in his glory and his splendor. To most of us as humans, this earth is our only and ultimate reality. I shouldn't use the plural pronouns because we are those who are in Christ if, if you're here as members of UBC. But to most humans, apart from Christ, this earth is their only and ultimate reality. They must seek pleasure. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. They must leave a legacy. They must live life to the fullest. All because they cling to this earth as home in the only place in time where they can gratify their pleasures. But to the people of God, this earth is a temporal reality and all pleasures are simply a dim mirror reflecting greater pleasures to come in Christ. The more that we embrace our pilgrim identity, the more that we're going to feel like we don't belong here. There should be something slightly uncomfortable about embracing the fact that this earth is not our home. Because the things that the, that the world values, the things that it places its hope and its desires in are not the same things that we place our hope and our desires in. So we're increasingly going to look different from the world. When we make countercultural decisions, the world is not going to understand those things. It's such an interesting arrangement. The more that we embrace being pilgrims, the more that we feel like we don't belong. As Christians, we ought to feel slightly uncomfortable in this world. But again, the hope of heaven as something that we consistently seek to reflect on will change how we live here. Again, if our faces are set only for this earth, when we seek to relate to one another, we're going to relate to those with whom it's easy to relate to. We're going to relate to people that look like us. We're going to relate to people that are easy to talk to because we want pleasure in this life. We want ease in this life. But when we step outside of ourselves and say, you know what? I'm just a pilgrim here. I'm just passing through this land. This is a foreign land. I've just put up a tent. I haven't built a home here. Why wouldn't I relate to those who need encouragement? You never know who God puts in our paths by his providence to help us to give encouragement and to relate to. If we just simply lift our eyes up away from this world and to those that are in front of us, we'll be amazed as we pray the types of people that God puts in our path to minister to. You'll see those in our church who are just really good at taking notice. I'm always encouraged by the example of our brother Ed Ray. He consistently knows what's going on in the lives of members and seeks to care for them, to follow up on their needs, to regularly pray for them, to care for them. Would God make us all more like that? May God make us all more like Ed Ray as Ed Ray follows Christ. Before we move on to our next section, I just want to pause here and see if you guys have any reflections or, or questions as you're chewing on some of this content. Yeah, Maria. Yeah, great question. Maria is asking the question, how do we balance having Christ in common but also enjoying some of the human commonalities that we have? Yeah, the last thing we want to do is to um, kind of create a, a church culture where you avoid the people that are like you because you're only going to stick to people that are unlike you. It's okay to have fun to the glory of God with people that are similar to you. It's okay if you're a college student to hang out with other college students and enjoy going to a football game. It's okay to hang out with other families and let your kids play with one another. The challenge that I'm giving is that our natural default is going to be to gravitate toward the people that are close to us. And it takes active obedience and awareness 
for that to not be the only stream that, that we push towards? Yeah, good question. Other questions, comments, reflections? Yeah, Brad. If you couldn't hear Brad, he was just saying that he had someone share with him that as Christians, it's okay to have cliques, but be seeking to ever expand those cliques and invite others into them. Yeah. Other questions, comments? There's so much wisdom in this room. I look at all your faces and I'm like, man, the wealth of wisdom here, we need to share it. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, that's a good word. Sam was noting that sometimes if there's someone that you feel like you don't have anything in common with or you don't know anything about them, one of the best places you can start is to just ask, how did the Lord save you? And typically when they share stories of how God saved them, you're going to learn something about their history as well. Did they grow up in a Christian home or did they not? How did they come to faith? Did they come to faith early or did they come to faith later in life? All of those are places that later you can pick up on in conversation. Yeah, maybe one more question or comment. Yeah, the newlywed. Nice. They just got back from their honeymoon last night and they're here. Wow, give it up. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, super helpful. Um, Ashton was noting that um, as an unbeliever, she felt some of the pressure of like being in a setting like this and like, oh, how, how will I relate to people? But then after coming to faith, recognizing, man, all it takes is to uh, recognize that once you've been saved, you have Christ in common. And so that can be a factor where you can relate and connect to anyone that's in this room. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it really is like a skill. Just like anything else that we set our minds to, whether it's work or parenting or uh, being faithful in whatever it is, or it's a sport. Like, how do you get better at it? Repetition. Practice. It's not merely practice when we do it among one another, but as you do it, you'll get more comfortable relating to people kind of outside of your normal box. So let's spend some time thinking about implications for singleness in the church. So there was a late American educator, writer, and thinker named David Foster Wallace. Some of you may have heard of him. He once gave a commencement address at a university, and it was titled, This is Water. He begins with a parable about two fish. So I've shared this parable before, but there's these two fish, these two young fish that are swimming along when they happen to pass an older fish who sees them and says to them, morning boys, how's the water? They keep on swimming along for a bit and then one of the young fish looks at the other one and says, what in the world is water? His point in sharing this parable is to say that oftentimes, the most important realities that face us are the ones that are impossible to see. A fish doesn't know what water is because it's the environment it lives in. It's the most evident reality to it, and yet it doesn't know it because it's all it knows. 
I wonder how aware are we of the waters that we're swimming in? Is being married, having a couple of kids, and owning a home just what you're supposed to do if you're a member of UBC? Is that just the path that is normal, expected? Is it a value-neutral environment just like water? Or could it be that we've grown so accustomed to the American kind of middle-class normality of getting married, having kids, buying a home, working toward retirement, that it's just what we do and we don't ever pause to ask, what is water? What is this lifestyle that I've just inherited by the culture around me? Are we living with the kingdom of God as priority in our lives or as periphery? Is the stream that we're swimming in, this picture that I've just painted, and the kingdom of God is somewhere there next to it, or is the kingdom of God first, and then these other things, they come if they come, if God gives them to us? Sure, we may mentally assent to the necessity for the kingdom of God to be the priority in all of our decision-making and priorities, but functionally, do your lifestyle choices and conversations reflect that? As we've just seen in the previous section, in Christ, we are a new creation set apart for God's glory, and we are primarily marked by this internal reality rather than anything external. So at the outset, I wanted to kind of poke against us to provoke us to thought about the waters that we're swimming in. I think it's okay to notice that at our church, there is a normal pattern of what happens in life. The majority of folks in our church follow that similar type of pattern. Get married, have kids, buy a home, save, work toward retirement. Those are fine things. But what about those among us for whom that's not the path? Do you ever consider what their life is like here in this church? Do you ever consider that Despite Christ being the common factor, some of those other outside worldly pressures might be the thing that often unite our conversations and commonality among one another. So we're going to take some time to continue meditating on this and to consider the implication of a changed heart on singleness. And again, the intent of this time is not just to speak to those who are without spouses, but to speak to all in our midst as we aim to love one another and to help each other along to heaven. We need to train ourselves to think outside the boundaries of human bloodlines and to see how the blood of Christ compels us to see our new spiritual families. So first, the gospel guards us against the idolatry of the physical family. Again, just to be clear, in all of these things, the point here is not to degrade or to devalue our physical families, whether through marriage or bearing children or even fostering or adopting children. Marriage and family are beautiful gifts from God. And John's actually going to spend the next two lessons discussing marriage and parenting. But in this section, we want to see how the gospel protects us from over-exalting the physical while minimizing the spiritual realities of our family. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50 with me. While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Three of the Gospels record this scene. Three times our understanding of true family is reconfigured to include anyone and everyone born again by the Spirit through the grace of God in Christ. I alluded to it earlier, but put another way, you have more in common with someone from a different culture, a different tongue, and demographic who is a believer than you do with an unbelieving family member who shares your very blood. Just imagine how this landed on a first century Jewish audience. To many of them, the physical bloodlines and bones were of most importance. They wanted to be able to trace lineage back to Abraham. In some ways, the Old Covenant taught them to value the physical seed, the physical land, the physical inheritance more than spiritual things. But Jesus was wanting to help them to see that he was fulfilling 
all of the Old Testament promises and inaugurating a new covenant in his blood, Christ's blood, not Abraham's blood. But secondly, the gospel gives... uh, I have this written down in my handout. What's, What's that second one say on the handout? Somebody got it? Honors. Thank you. Yeah, so second, the gospel honors a life of singleness devoted to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. So though we are free to marry, we are also free not to marry and free to serve the Lord in our singleness for his glory and his church. Though marriage is the norm for most people, we must never be responsible for creating a culture that elevates marriage to a place that functionally causes singles to feel like lesser people in the church. Again, both of those things can be true. We can say that marriage is the norm for most people. And yet that should never be cause for creating an environment where anyone who's not married feels like a junior varsity team that's just waiting to graduate to the varsity team. See what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about what? The things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about what? Worldly things. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. As a formerly single person and a recently married person myself, I can freshly attest to the reality of this verse. In my singleness, I was freed up to give my time, my resources, my service to the church in a number of different ways, whether it was in serving families or cooking meals or just being present. But as a married person, my interests are divided. I'm anxious about how to please and honor and serve my wife, and that's good and right. I ought to be anxious about that because that's a responsibility God has given to me now. But the point that Paul is making is that if someone has been given the gift of contentment and singleness and they are able to truly leverage their singleness for the purpose of God's kingdom, this is a highly valued gift to the church. This is something that God intends to bless us and to build us up. Husbands cannot spend their years traveling all over the world, sharing the gospel, planting churches apart from their family because God calls them to devote themselves to the spiritual good of their wife and children. Similarly, wives are called by God to serve their husbands and children in a manner that consumes a great deal of time and energy and other personal resources. This is not bad. It's good. But it also means that she's not free to pursue other interests without first considering the toll that it might take on her family. A single follower of Jesus Christ, whether a man or a woman, is free to be undivided in their devotion to the Lord. Marriage and family are good gifts from the Lord, but singleness is a gift as well. And it's actually an even better gift when it comes to undivided attention to the Lord. And what an honorable thing to pursue in this life, undivided attention in service to the Lord. I hope that that's encouragement for any of you who are single and desire to be married. That you can pray and long for God to provide you a spouse but to also petition the Lord and say, God, grant me, as long as you have me single and this desire is still there, contentment that you have freed me up to be singly minded, devoted to you, to give myself to knowing you, to serving others. That can be a hard and long prayer to pray. It can test your patience and your trust in the Lord's goodness. But the hope is that we as a church are able to come alongside and encourage and pray that prayer for the singles among us as well. Third, the gospel makes us more than marital status, Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5. So whether single or married or divorced or widowed, our identity is not in those statuses, but in our status as children of God, members of the body of Christ, destined for glory. Marriage is a good and temporary gift, but when we turn temporary gifts of God into God's, we misunderstand the gift and devalue the people who either receive the gift 
or don't receive the gift because we make the gift the most important thing about them. Listen to these encouraging words of God from Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So there's a foreigner who's afraid of being separated from the people of God. And let not the eunuch say, those who are unable to have children, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He's saying that possessing heaven, this eternal everlasting name that shall not be cut off is better than anything that you could have in this life. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Praise the Lord that he cares for all people. But fourth, the gospel prepares us for marriage to Jesus Christ. Last week, I was officiating a wedding in DFW for Gavin and Ashton here. Um, And in the ceremony, we reflected on how one's marriage vows to remain committed to one another for as long as we have life is a dim picture of the permanent vow God has made to love us and to never leave us if we are in Christ. This is the ultimate end goal of life, marriage with Jesus. A life of singleness devoted to the Lord is every bit as valuable as a life of marriage devoted to the Lord. Christ is ultimate, not singleness, not marriage. Whatever your marital status in this life, If you are in Christ, you will be married to Jesus at the end of your days. And that marriage will be eternal. Listen to these words that describe the marriage in such sweet language. This is how God describes those who are in Christ. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This language is so evocative and affectionate that it almost makes us uncomfortable. I remember the first time I read this in Isaiah and my mind was illuminated to it. I had to like take a second glance. I was like, is that that really in my Bible? Does it really say, you shall be called my delight? is in her? That's astounding. God esteems those of us who are in Christ as unbelievably precious. He has shown us this by giving up his very son to spill his blood to purchase us for himself. If you've ever been at a wedding or perhaps you've been a groom yourself, you know the delight on the groom's face when they see their bride come through those back doors. This passage is saying that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, our God rejoices over us. It doesn't matter what happens to you in this life. It doesn't matter how hard your life is. It doesn't matter 
what your status is in this life. If your status is in Christ, God rejoices at getting to see you. And in fact, if your life is hard, if you're experiencing suffering, if you feel relationally isolated or lonely, when you see your God face to face and you see the delight that he has for you, oh, what a comfort that will be. Maybe even more so to those who have a hard lot in this life than those who make it easy. And that's the end goal. That's what we want. Marriage with Jesus that brings us face to face with our God. Whether single and content, single and discontent, married and content, or married and discontent, this life and your marital status is not your final destination. Christ is. And he loves you with an everlasting love. Do you believe this? If God were to persuade your heart more and more that this is the case, how might it change your outlook on this life? How might it change your outlook on life among one another in the church? That might be a wise question to reflect on over lunch or sometime this week. Because God delights in you in Christ with an everlasting love, how might that change your outlook on this life? We're wrapping things up a bit early in here because there's going to be a brief time of Q&A in the main hall with our guest preacher, Jonathan Worsley. But before we dismiss and head over that way, I just want to pause again here at the end of our time and um, see if you have any questions or comments uh, from our time together. What did you say the first part, Amber? Amen. Amen. God never lets us go. If you have been saved by Christ and united to him, then you are kept forever. Yeah. Any other questions or comments, reflections? Amen. Amber's calling for an altar call. (laughs) If Jesus is not your Savior, receive him. Come with the empty hands of faith. Admit your sin and trust that he can save you, that this earth doesn't have to be your final destiny, but you can be united to a family here that's going to help you until you get to heaven. Amber's two for two. She's putting the rest of y'all to shame. Any other questions, comments, reflections? Anything you're challenged or encouraged by? Amen. Mike's noting the challenge that he's feeling, that I feel, that I'm trust all of us feel. 
that if God's desire is to bring in the foreigner, to bring in the marginalized, to bring in those who experience great challenge and suffering in this life so that he can delight in them in the ways that these passages talk about, it's challenging to us to think, man, I don't have to have anything in common with these people except maybe a language to be able to communicate, to share the hope of the gospel, to draw them in, to trust that, man, suffering may be their lot in this life or in this season, but their eternal destiny can be one of which God delights in them. And that should encourage us to cross those boundaries. Yeah, great reflection, Mike. Yeah, Cole. Yeah, Cole, Cole's asking the question just, I've been at UBC two and a half years now. I've been married the last uh, five months, um, but first two years here as a single person. And, um, and I mean, to my perspective, like, I haven't experienced singleness for a long period of time like, like some have in ways that can bring a significant amount of discomfort or suffering in different ways. Um, I think one significant way that we can kind of step outside of ourselves and engage those, not just singles, but anyone who may be experiencing some sort of uh, relational kind of disconnect, um, the linger culture at UBC is really strong and really sweet, but the linger culture is only as strong as it is if you pursue people in those particular areas. So it's easy to kind of sit in the same spot and relate and connect to the same people or to immediately make a beeline after the service to talk to the people that you want to talk to. But if instead, during the service, as you sing and as you see people come in, just have your eyes peeled. Look, does it look like anyone's sitting by themselves? Do I notice someone who regularly leaves immediately following the gathering? Could I intersect them and just strike up conversation? Is there someone who's kind of sitting off on their own? Um, So just have your eyes peeled and observe. And then once you observe, take action and and, and kind of reach out. I will say, though, that I am deeply encouraged by the ways that this church is good at, I think, inviting people into their homes and keep pressing on in that. You don't have to have the most space. You don't have to be the best cook. You don't have to do much other than just be a friendly face who wants to invite others into your home um, to be uh, loving and encouraging um, to them. And then the last thing I would mention is... um, Sometimes questions of suffering or singleness or any of those things can feel a little bit like taboo or inappropriate to broach with someone, but I think it's perfectly appropriate, I mean, depending on how the person receives it, have some tact in conversation, but to just say like, hey, is this a struggle for you? And if so, like, how can I come alongside you and and pray for you? Um, For some, it may not be as much, but just asking the question Uh, best case scenario is going to mean a lot to them and worst case scenario just means you can move on to kind of a different conversation topic but um, I trust that God is growing us in humility and we're all willing to um, not uh, I think kind of get defensive at questions that are a little bit more invasive into uh, matters of the heart so no pun intended yeah let me pray for us and then we'll head over to the main hall